You should hear the things that she says. She says, I'm drop dead. I'd rather go to bed with Gabriel Garcia Marquez. <laughs> Cuddle up with Robertson Davies. Leave on the light for Jane Rule. I've been flirting with Pia Burton, and Pia Burton's no fool. I like to go out dancing. My baby loves a bunch of authors. My heart's a broken bleeding. Baby just sitting there doing some reading. Hey there. Welcome to the Mirror Factory. I'm the foreman, Max Romero. And since this is the first episode, this will be a little different because I want to explain just what's going on here. The Mirror Factory is a literary podcast that will feature a different guest on every episode. Together, we'll talk about the guest's favorite passage from a particular book, when they first read it, and why it had an impact on them. Then, we'll wrap up every episode with our guest reading their passage. One thing I don't want this podcast to be is stuffy or super serious. So hopefully we'll have passages from everything from classic literature to sci-fi, fantasy, and other genre lit. Personally, I'm looking forward to our first crime novel. If you'd like to be a guest, I'll have the contact information at the end of this episode and on the Fire and Water Podcast Network website. But first, let me tell you a story. When I was in elementary school, I had a job. Not some classroom job like banging erasers or putting away workbooks. This was a special job. In the school library. Me and three or four other bookworms worked in the library once or twice a week for a couple of months and it was like heaven. I loved it. I got to push a cart around and shelve books. I got to stand behind the raised counter and stamp due dates into books. I felt important. I felt like I was a part of something. Big stuff for a nine-year-old. And then one day we were put in front of a big pile of books and told to start ripping the covers off. This was horrifying for me. I'd been taught to respect books, to treasure them, almost to covet them as holy artifacts. I made sure my hands were clean before I picked one up. I never dog-eared pages. Breaking a book's spine was a sin, and now I had to tear them apart? Toss the skins into one bin and the guts into another? The worst part was the way it felt. It was fun. The way all illicit things tend to be. Frightening and titillating all at once. And once you got going, all too easy. A few years later, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 would remind me of that day. Fahrenheit 451 would have a huge impact on me when I read it. I don't remember if it was for school or on my own, but I read it in a day, and it would be branded into my brain forever. The story of Montag, a near-future fireman who burns books for the good of a passive society, chilled me then and still does today. Its world of numbing entertainment, willful ignorance, and looming nuclear war has always seemed disturbingly close. Sometimes it's hard not to look at our own world and see Montag's unnamed city, or to hear the ever-closer steps of the mechanical hound. Still, Bradbury gives his readers hope in the final pages of this classic. After abandoning everything he's known, including his job, his home, his wife, Montag has managed to escape his pursuers and has fallen in with what looks like a bunch of hobos. But as one of them later says, you can't judge a book by a cover. Together, and with thousands of others across the country, these people are a library. With the hope that someday society will be ready to think and learn again, the group has memorized what they can. Whole books, sometimes just passages, anything with the idea of someday sharing what was nearly lost. But before then, something else is about to be lost. Enemy bombers carrying nuclear payloads are headed to the city. I'll be back with that passage from Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 after this break. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Give Me That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before.
at Star Trek. A new episode every month only at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes. Well, I think of myself more as a song and dance man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> call him Lucky Wilbur. You may call him Bobby. You may call him Zimmy. But the world calls him Bob Dylan. It's Pod Dylan, the only podcast dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. From Fahrenheit 451, by Ray Bradbury. Look, cried Montag, and the war began and ended in that instant. Later, the men around Montag could not say if they had really seen anything. Perhaps the merest flourish of light and motion in the sky. Perhaps the bombs were there, in the jets, ten miles, five miles, one mile up, for the merest instant, like grain thrown over the heavens by a great sowing hand, and the bombs drifting with dreadful swiftness, yet sudden slowness down upon the morning city they had left behind. The bombardment was to all intents and purposes finished, once the jets had sighted their target, alerted their bombardier at 5,000 miles an hour. As quick as the whisper of a scythe, the war was finished. Once the bomb release was yanked, it was over. Now, a full three seconds, all of the time in history, before the bomb struck, the enemy ships themselves were gone half around the visible world, like bullets in which a savage islander might not believe because they were invisible. Yet the heart is suddenly shattered. The body falls in separate motions and the blood is astonished to be freed on the air. The brain squanders its few precious memories and, puzzled, dies. This was not to be believed. It was merely a gesture. Montag saw the flirt of a great metal fist over the far city and he knew the scream of the jets that would follow. Would say after the deed, disintegrate, leave no stone on another, perish, die. Montag held the bombs in the sky for a single moment, with his mind in his hands reaching helplessly up at them. Run, he cried to Faber, to Clarice, run! To Mildred, get out, get out of there. But Clarice, he remembered, was dead. And Faber was out, there in the deep valleys of the country somewhere the 5 a.m. bus was on its way from one desolation to another. Though the desolation had not yet arrived, it was still in the air. It was certain as man could make it. Before the bus had run another 50 yards on the highway, its destination would be meaningless, and its point of departure changed from metropolis to junkyard. And Mildred, get out, run! He saw her in her hotel room somewhere now in the half-second remaining with the bombs a yard, a foot, an inch from her building. He saw her leaning toward the great shimmering walls of color and motion where the family talked and talked and talked to her, where the family prattled and chatted and said her name and smiled at her and said nothing of the bomb that was an inch, now a half-inch, now a quarter-inch from the top of the hotel. Leaning into the wall as if all of the hunger of looking would find the secret of her sleepless unease there. Mildred, leaning anxiously, nervously, as if to plunge, drop, fall into that great swarming immensity of color to drown in its bright happiness. The first bomb struck. Mildred! Perhaps, who would ever know? Perhaps the great broadcasting stations with their beams of color and light and talk and chatter went first into oblivion. Montag, falling flat, going down, saw or felt, or imagined he saw or felt, the walls go dark in Millie's face. Heard her screaming because in the millionth part of time left she saw her own face reflected there. 
in a mirror instead of a crystal ball. And it was such a wildly empty face, all by itself in the room, touching nothing, starved and eating of itself, that at last she recognized it as her own and looked quickly up at the ceiling as it and the entire structure of the hotel blasted down upon her, carrying her with a million pounds of brick, metal, plaster, and wood to meet other people in the hives below, all on their quick way down to the cellar where the explosion rid itself of them in its own unreasonable way. I remember. Montag clung to the earth. I remember. Chicago. Chicago a long time ago. Millie and I. That's where we met. I remember now. Chicago. A long time ago. The concussion knocked the air across and down the river, turned the men over like dominoes in a line, blew the water in lifting sprays and blew the dust and made the trees above them mourn with a great wind passing away south. Montag crushed himself down, squeezing himself small, eyes tight. He blinked once, and in that instant saw the city instead of the bombs in the air. They had displaced each other. For another of those impossible instants, the city stood, rebuilt and unrecognizable, taller than it had ever hoped or strived to be, taller than man had built it, erected at last in gouts of shattered concrete and sparkles of torn metal into a mural hung like a reversed avalanche. A million colors, a million oddities, a door where a window should be, a top for a bottom, a side for a back, and then the city rolled over and fell down dead. The sound of its death came after. Montag, lying there, eyes gritted shut with dust, a fine wet cement of dust in his now shut mouth, gasping and crying, now thought again. I remember. I remember. I remember something else. What is it? Yes, yes, part of Ecclesiastes. Part of Ecclesiastes and Revelation. Part of that book, part of it, quick now, quick, before it gets away, before the shock wears off, before the wind dies. Book of Ecclesiastes. Here. He said it over to himself silently, lying flat to the trembling earth. He said the words of it many times and they were perfect, without trying, and there was no denim's dentrifice anywhere. It was just a preacher by himself, standing there in his mind, looking at him. There, said a voice. The men lay gasping like fish laid out on the grass. They held to the earth as children hold to familiar things no matter how cold or dead, no matter what has happened and or will happen. Their fingers were clawed into the dirt and they were all shouting to keep their eardrums from bursting, to keep their sanity from bursting, mouths open, Montag shouting with them, a protest against the wind that ripped their faces and tore at their lips, making their noses bleed. Montag watched the great dust settle and the great silence move down upon their world, and lying there it seemed that he saw every single grain of dust and every blade of grass, and that he heard every cry and shout and whisper going up in the world now. Silence fell down in the sifting dust and all the leisure they might need to look around, to gather the reality of this day into their senses. Montag looked at the river. We'll go to the river. He looked at the old railroad tracks. Or we'll go that way. Or we'll walk on the highways now, and we'll have time to put things into ourselves. And someday, after it sets in us a long time, it'll come out our hands and our mouths. And a lot of it will be wrong, but just enough of it will be right. We'll just start walking today and see the world and the way the world walks around and talks, the way it really looks. I want to see everything now. And while none of it will be me when it goes in, after a while it'll all gather together inside and it'll be me. Look at the world out there. Look at it out there. Outside me. Out there beyond my face and the only way to really touch it is to put it where it's finally me. Where it's in the blood. Where it pumps around a thousand times ten thousand a day. I get hold of it so it'll never run off. I'll hold on to the world tight someday. I've got one finger on it now. That's the beginning. The wind died. The other men lay a while on the dawn edge of sleep, not yet ready to rise up and begin the day's obligations, its fires and foods, its thousand details of putting foot after foot and hand after hand. They lay blinking their dusty eyelids. You could hear them breathing fast, then slower, then slow. Montag sat up. 
He did not move any further, however. The other men did likewise. The sun was touching the black horizon with a faint red tip. The air was cold and smelled of a coming rain. Silently, Granger arose, felt of his arms and legs, swearing, swearing incessantly under his breath, tears dripping from his face. He shuffled down to the river to look upstream. It's flat, he said, a long time later. City looks like a heap of baking powder. It's gone. And a long time after that. I wonder how many knew it was coming. I wonder how many were surprised. And across the world, thought Montag, how many other cities dead? And here in our country, how many? A hundred? A thousand? Someone struck a match and touched it to a piece of dry paper taken from their pocket, and shoved this under a bit of grass and leaves, and after a while added tiny twigs which were wet and sputtered, but finally caught. And the fire grew larger in the early morning as the sun came up, and the men slowly turned from looking up river and were drawn to the fire, awkwardly, with nothing to say, and the sun colored the back of their necks as they bent down. Granger unfolded an oilskin with some bacon in it. We'll have a bite, then we'll turn around and walk upstream. They'll be needing us that way. Someone produced a small frying pan, and the bacon went into it, and the frying pan was set on the fire. After a moment, the bacon began to flutter and dance in the pan, and the sputter of it filled the morning air with its aroma. The men watched this ritual silently. Granger looked into the fire. Phoenix. What? There was a silly bird called a phoenix back before Christ. Every few hundred years he built a pyre and burned himself up. He must have been first cousin to man. But every time he burnt himself up, he sprang out of the ashes. He got himself born all over again. It looks like we're doing the same thing over and over, but we've got one thing the phoenix never had. We know the silly thing we just did. We know all the silly things we've done for a thousand years, and as long as we know that and always have it around when we see it, someday we'll stop making the funeral pyres and jumping in the middle of them. We'll pick up a few more people that remember, every generation. He took the pan off the fire and let the bacon cool and they ate it, slowly, thoughtfully. Now let's get on upstream, said Granger, and hold on to one thought. You're not important. You're not anything. Someday the load we're carrying with us may help someone. But even when we had the books on hand a long time ago, we didn't use what we got out of them. We went right on insulting the dead. We went right on spitting in the graves of all the poor ones who died before us. We're going to meet a lot of lonely people in the next week, in the next month, in the next year. And when they ask us what we're doing, you can say, we're remembering. That's where we'll win out in the long run. And someday we'll remember so much that we'll build the biggest steam shovel in history and dig the biggest grave of all time and shove war in and cover it up. Come on now. We're going to go build a mirror factory first and put out nothing but mirrors for the next year and take a long look at them. They finished eating and put out the fire. The day was brightening all about them as if a pink lamp had been given more wick. In the trees, the birds that had flown away quickly now came back and settled down. If you'd like to leave a comment, you can do that at fireandwaterpodcast.com. And if you'd like to be a guest on the Mirror Factory, contact me at mirrorfactorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Factory Mirror or at the Mirror Factory on Facebook. The Mirror Factory is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Thanks for listening, and until next time, read a book! Woo-hoo!